Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Mom and Dad are Fighting is sponsored by Bloom, helping new families find the products they need, from pregnancy to preschool. Discover a personalized box of new goodies for your child delivered to your doorstep every month. Get 40% off the first month of a new subscription when you visit bloom.com slash momdad and use the promo code momdad. That's B-L-U-U-M slash momdad and the promo code momdad. And by Gemvara. Turn old jewelry or a loose gemstone into a new design setting you'll love. Choose from a variety of beautiful designs or customize your own. Right now, get 15% off the stone reset of your choice at stonereset.com slash momanddad. That's stonereset.com slash momanddad. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to Mom and Dad Are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, June 4th, 2015, the Your Kids Not Getting a Scholarship edition. I'm Dan Coyce. I'm the dad of Harper, who's seven, and Lyra, who's 10. I am Allison Benedict, the mom of Harry, who's six, Sam, who's four, and Wally, who's two. Hi, Allison. Hey, Dan. On today's episode, we will welcome Summer by talking about the tyranny of youth sports with John O'Sullivan, who runs the Changing the Game Project. Then we'll discuss the parenting lifestyles of the super moms of the Upper East Side with Wednesday Martin, the author of the brand new Primates of Park Avenue. Plus, Triumphs and Fails, a listener question about appropriate reading for children of a certain age, and more. But first, if you enjoy the show, please tell your friends. This week, with Father's Day coming up soon, I want to tell you to tell a dad. 
We have a lot of great dad listeners among our audience. We hear from them all the time, but we, of course, want more and more and more. We're greedy. So find a dad in your life. It could be your husband or your partner or your ex-husband, or it could be a dad at the playground or a dad that you play dad kickball with. Dad kickball is, it's dad, it's dad basketball. Uh, or it could be your own dad. We don't care. But anyways, tell a dad about the show and particularly tell him about how my dadding will make him feel better about his own. Uh, another exciting announcement. Dan and I are headed to Durham, North Carolina for our first ever live show. Are you excited? Yeah. We're like, we're growing up among Slate Podcasts. Uh, we'll be fighting live and in person on June 7th, which is Sunday, Sunday. which is Sunday. Sunday. <laughs> Motorco in Durham, North Carolina, with special guest Mac McCon, co-founder of the indie rock label Merge Records, and also Super Chunk frontman, who has a new solo album out and is a dad and generally a great guy. We're going to talk to Mac. Does Matt Mac doesn't know this, but we're going to talk to Mac about abandoning his children to go on tour. I mean, he knows he's going to be there. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll be quizzing Mac and Dan on dad stuff for Father's Day. Mac will also play music. Which will be the best part of the show. That will definitely be the best part of the show. Allison's dance moves behind Mac playing music will be the best part of the show. Uh, It should be really fun. Please, everyone, come to the show if you're in the Triangle area or in North Carolina or just really in like the southeast. We and we're really we're gonna take we're gonna take questions live from the audience instead of having a listener call and try to we're gonna be put on the spot to try to answer and then you'll then you'll be really disappointed (laughs) in us. And we have we maintain and and we have appeared on other podcasts in our Slate lives before. We maintain that we have the best listeners of Correct. all Slate podcasts. We right. get the best emails from you guys. So we really do. We are very much looking forward to meeting you in person. So go to slate.com slash mom and dad live and buy your tickets. They're on sale now. Please join us. We can't wait to see you there and meet you. And, and I'll buy everyone a beer probably. Right? I mean, if not a lot of people come. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I'll definitely buy you a beer the person who's listening right now. And finally, last plug, if you are a fan of Slate Podcasts, please consider joining Slate Plus. You can get tons of bonus segments on podcasts, plus whole entire bonus podcast series, including our great new Slate Academy, The History of American Slavery, with Rebecca Onion and Jamel Bowie. It's a nine-part podcast series telling the story of our nation's foundational institution through the lives of nine enslaved people. We've opened up this week's amazing episode for everyone to listen to as a free sample. It's about Olauda Equiano, who wrote the first widely read slave narrative and was, in fact, instrumental in convincing Britain to abolish slavery. He had an amazing life. You can hear all about it from Jamel and Rebecca. Go to slate.com slash academy to check out the free episode and sign up for Slate Plus. All right. So on to the episode and triumphs and fails. Allison, what do you have this week? So I have a fail. As regular listeners know, John, the kids, and I are moving to New Jersey. I'm going to be a Jersey mom in less than a month. Uh, Clock is ticking (laughs) on your cool life. It ends soon. This has caused some stress in our family. I would say mostly because of me. I mean, it is a logistical nightmare to move, as I'm sure many of you know, and Dan, you know. Although, did you, I forget, I've asked you this numerous times, you had kids or you did not have kids when you guys moved? We had kids when we moved, yeah. Okay, so it's not just the house buying process, but also finding a new preschool and childcare and camp and blah, 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 blah. So that stress has definitely been getting to me. I've had, I'm not going to do this to you, I hope, in the podcast, but I've had this very persistent eye twitch for like four (laughs) weeks, and if you're ever in a meeting with me at work, I'm like in the middle of saying something, and I'll I'll stop and I'll make you look in my eye and say, can you see it twitching? And uh-huh. it's, it's not been the, the best professional <laughs> time for me these past few weeks. Anyway, so my eyes have been twitching. My eye has been twitching. And 
My fail is that I think I'm doing a pretty crap job of shielding my kids from this. Not just shielding them from the stress, which I think is sort of manifests itself in us just having like a tense household right now, which whatever that happens, but shielding them from my feelings mm-hmm. about all of this, which are basically, I know we got to go, but I don't want to go, which are the same feelings that my kids are experiencing. And to some degree, I think it's good. Like they know that I understand how they're feeling. They're feeling sad. I'm feeling sad. It's good that we can relate. But I think... Also, it's probably good for them to know that I'm like a rock and it's a little bit scary and destabilizing for them to see me crying (laughs) when they ask about anything. Anything, yeah. Yeah. So I need to pull it together, as John said to me during one of my heaving, gasping cries to him a couple of Sundays ago, people move all the fucking time, (laughs) quote John Cook. (laughs) So I'm going to try to be better, uh, be much more positive around my kids. Listeners, if you have any advice... I know you'll email it to me. Uh, I mean, like Xanax. Xanax seems like great <laughs> advice. Uh, it is really hard. I agree that it is really hard. I would urge you to know that I think it's, it is really also useful to them to know that you have feelings and you share those feelings. And also to know that this decision, while the right one, was not easy. That yeah. you guys thought about it a lot and you did not make it cavalierly. You decided it was the best thing for you, even though it's not the thing you most immediately want to do, which is a valuable thing for kids to know about. The problem is when I share that with them, I feel like they see, or I know that they see like a little window of opening. Like right. Carrie's like, maybe right. then we She's, don't have to do it. She cries all the time. Right. Maybe she'll change her mind. Right. Uh, what do you have? I have a triumph. Um, it's a parenting triumph, but it's sort of more a an extended family triumph. My father-in-law uh, has been having some health problems recently, and I wanted to help out my mother-in-law, who's been dealing with him a lot, and also get the kids some quality time with him, which has been in short supply recently. So I made last weekend Sir Weekend. So my father-in-law, his grandpa name is Sir, because when we asked him before Lyra was born what he wanted the coming child to call him, he said, she can call me Sir. So that is his grandpa name. It is Wait, Sir. sidebar. We had an amazing conversation <laughs> at Slate about what everybody's kids call their grandchildren. Yeah. There was a captain. Yeah, there's a captain. Right? Yeah. Well, I have a good one in my family, Momfna, Momfna. M-O-M-F-N-A. Oh, I forgot about this. She yeah. has a license plate that says Momfna, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, so these grandparents are Kiki and Sir. And uh, so we had Sir Weekend. And uh, I drove out and played golf with him. It was my first golf in four years. It was terrible. I was terrible. I can tell because you said it was my first golf in four years. <laughs> it, was, it was the first time I played golf in four years. It was my first golfage. But then we had him over for dinner, and then I took him and the girls to a Nationals game the next day. After He stayed over for the night, and it was really great. Like, it was enjoyable. It was really nice for me to hang out with him a little. The kids loved seeing him. It was something that made my wife and her mom feel a little bit better about things, and they I think that they both liked that we just had this thing that they didn't have to, like, organize it or figure it out. And, um, look, I know that being with your relatives should not be a triumph in your life, but, like— Do you know that? <laughs> depends on the relative, I guess. <laughs> But as is the case with many grandpas, I think he is often sort of left behind in like the family planning. You know, Kiki makes the plans and then he goes along or he doesn't. And I sometimes am the one who begs off of in-law responsibilities because I can. They're not my parents. So it's easy for me to beg off if I'm really busy or I have something going on or whatever. Uh, But it was nice to focus on him for a weekend. And I think the kids loved it and he loved it and... Uh, Kiki and Alia really loved it, so I'm viewing it as a triumph. That's awesome. Thanks. 
All right, let's move on to a message from our first sponsor, Bloom.com. Bloom.com started in 2011 as a beautifully curated service for new parents to discover the best products for their child. If you're like me, when you had a baby, you were like, there, there's 75 rows at Babies R Us, and I don't know what to get, and I don't know what any of these things are, or whether they're good or shitty or what. And so Bloom.com is a service that basically picks these things out for you. They have this whole staff of MOMs, they call them managers of merchandising, and they find the products that they think are best, they test them out and then they send you each month this really cool box of five products that are specifically geared toward your kid's development like not just their age not just oh your kid's three months old so here's some stuff for three month olds they and you're like oh my god my kid doesn't do that what's wrong with right me? right or like my kid's already <laughs> driving a car um anyways bloom sends you stuff that's specifically tailored to what they're actually doing what the way that their lives actually are they have really cool you know teething products and toys and little blankets and they also have really really good books like baby really great baby and board books that i think are super 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 engaging um you can track your kids milestones in your bloom account so they know what's up with your kid and you can check every month to see what kinds of new products they have if you want to add stuff to your order. Um, anyways, Bloom is a really cool product, and you can get 40% off your first month of all monthly 3, 6, and 12-month plans, plus free shipping if you use our special code and URL. Go to bloom.com slash momdad. That's B-L-U-U-M dot com slash momdad, and use the code momdad. And once again, that gets you 40% off the first month of your plan. So check it out, please. And please use that special URL so they know we sent you. All right, let's move on to our first topic. It's the beginning of summer, which means that youth athletes are switching sports from spring baseball to summer swimming or spring basketball to summer lacrosse, or at least that's how it used to work. These days, it seems kids are just switching from spring travel softball to summer travel softball with a side order of softball camp, batting weekends, and pitching clinics. Travel teams have transformed the landscape of youth sports, as many athletic kids start specializing in a sport as young as 9 or 10, playing it year-round to the exclusion of other activities. It can be wildly expensive and time-consuming, and studies show that kids who play one sport exclusively are more prone to injury and burnout. But on the other hand, a recent University of Florida study commissioned by ESPN Magazine tells the story of kids thrilled to be spending all their time playing the sport they love. 96% of elite youth athletes said they really enjoy the time they spend playing their sport. Joining us to talk about travel teams and the way youth sports work in the 21st century is John O'Sullivan. He's the author of Changing the Game, The Parent's Guide to Raising Happy, High-Performing Athletes and Giving Youth Sports Back to Our Kids, and he's the head of the Changing the Game Project. Hi, John. Hey, how are you guys? Great. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me on. So, John, explain to our listeners who might not know sort of how the system works these days what travel sports are and how they're different from the way that our listeners might remember sports working, you know, when we were kids. Well... I think even when we were kids, and I'm 43, travel sports existed, but they, they usually started a little bit later. They were started in sort of the 12, 13 middle school ages. And so kids grew up playing sports in their town. There wasn't a lot of travel. The athletes got to play with other good athletes. There were spots for a lot of people. And they went from sport to sport, from season to season. So you might play fall soccer and winter wrestling or basketball and spring baseball. And then there's been this shift where all of a sudden a lot of these youth sports have become travel sports and they're expensive and they're asking kids to do more and more and more at younger and younger ages. And really what happened is, you know, they said, oh, well, we get that we start 
travel at 12, so let's get the 11s organized. And two or three years later, they said, hey, we already got the 11s organized. Why don't they start traveling, and let's get the 10s organized. And so you have this downward creep of getting kids into year-round commitments to sport at younger and younger ages, sometimes as young as six or seven years old. Do you know where that comes from? Is that, you know, is the they that's saying, like, hey, we got them at 12, let's get them at 11? Is that is that parents, or is that, like, some, you know, sort of sports enterprise business? <laughs> you know, I, I don't think you could point to any one factor. There's a, a combination of factors. Number one, schools and education budgets are being cut, so there's less school opportunities. There's less PE, so people are looking outside of the publicly provided places for play. Number two, youth sports has become a business. And so a lot of these organizations own their own ice rink or own their own soccer park or own their own indoor center. Well, they have to fill those fields year-round in order to pay the bills. And then sports clubs have arisen with with salaries and with directors. And I was one of them. I ran soccer clubs for for many, many years. And certainly not saying here that, that paying a coach or being part of a great organization can't be a good thing. But I think these organizations have to take a far more balanced approach that serves the needs and the values of the kids and not the needs and the values of of the people getting paid or, or necessarily even the parents in the club. It should be about the kids and what's best for them. So what would you say to a parent who does have their kid in a, in a travel sport where they're playing really intensively around, who argues that they're just giving their kid the best chance to excel, the best chance to compete seriously and get great against great competition at the sport they want to play? Well, what I say to people all the time is certainly it depends on the age of your kid. If you're if you're a child that's 14 and they said this is the sport I want, I'm going all in. I want to play in college. That's not necessarily a bad thing. That kid is old enough to make that decision and, and follow that path. If your seven year old is only going down that one path, I say my seven year old only wants to eat macaroni and cheese, but I know better. And I know you have to eat your vegetables, too, because that's good for your health. And so what the physicians tell us is that if your child only does that one sport and doesn't get a rest and goes from one most important event of the year to the next, 11, 12 months a year, they're 70 to 90 percent more likely to get injured. They're far more likely to burn out and quit than kids who play multiple sports are far more likely to develop identity and psychological issues. So there's a lot of drawbacks. And, you know, sadly, a lot of people say, well, it worked for Earl Woods or Richard Williams. Look how their kids turned out. Well, there's a lot of factors that, that, that go into making an elite athlete and driving them at a really young age to only do one sport and going all in is only one of a, a whole basket full of things that will determine whether they're going to make it or not. You mentioned a kid deciding he wants to play a sport in college. Do you? I feel like a lot of parents are driven to this by this dream of having a kid who might be able to get into a great college that they wouldn't have gotten into otherwise, or even get a scholarship to you know to Duke to play lacrosse or something like that. Do you think that is there an argument to be made that sports specialization can help in that, or do you think that even, that at a young age sports specialization doesn't help someone get a shot at a college scholarship? Well. All the research and all the science on sports specialization really shows that outside of female gymnastics and, and figure skating, where, where those athletes hit their athletic peak in their teen years, there's not a long-term advantage to specializing at a really, really young age. 
in all the team sports, you mentioned lacrosse, you're certainly football, basketball, there is an advantage to developing all-around athleticism to being hungry and, and loving to play the game. Now, the other sort of big myth out there is that if I specialize early and I do all this, we're going to get this money back and this time back in the form of an athletic scholarship. But the statistics in the NCA are pretty clear that only about 2% of high school athletes play a college sport. And of that, only a small percentage get athletic aid to do so. So the, the chances of, of an athlete getting a scholarship are like less than 1%, and they're usually partial scholarships. So sports can be an investment in a whole ton of things, right? Overcoming challenges, learning to work hard, character development, all these things. But a scholarship needs to be the icing on the cake. It, it can't be the cake. And I think far too many people are, are fed this myth that, well, if you just do this, your kid's going to get a scholarship. And, and it's really not true. Is there scholarships out there? Of course, but I think sports can serve a far bigger purpose in life. And, and I'm the biggest fan there is of competitive sports. That's what I've been involved in my whole life. But the path many people go down doesn't make kids better. It doesn't make them more competitive. It makes them quit. I think I also think a lot of parents probably do know, at least somewhere in the back of their head, that like it's very unlikely my child is going to get a scholarship to college. And a lot of this is like social pressure. Like this is what people do on the weekends, right? right. This is like how kids hang out with each other. All the and this is how the like this is what the parents do. And even if they complain about it, like their their lives are structured around this, and it's hard to break that in your community. There's also a sense in our community, at least in Arlington where I live, that like it's really hard to play a sport past a certain age if you are not willing to go, like, all in. Like, rec leagues just sort of dwindle away and disappear. And if you want to play soccer at age 13, you'd better be goddamn serious about playing soccer and play it all the damn time because otherwise you're not going to get on any team anywhere. Right, exactly. And I think this is one of the the biggest issues in youth sports is that that divide, right, that you either can play only soccer or only basketball or only baseball is happening at far too young an age. I certainly don't have a problem with, as you said, a 13-year-old who, who says, I really want to do soccer and being on teams that, that play most of the year. Those kids still should be doing yoga or tumbling or martial arts or other things to develop all-around athleticism. That's what the kids in the pro country, in pro teams around the world do. But when, when that decision is being forced upon kids and parents at seven or eight years old, there is no benefit to those kids. The benefit is going to the people who are who they're paying the bills to. And I have yet to see any science that says that being forced to make that decision at that age is a good thing and is healthy for their long-term thing. And all the studies done about Olympic athletes, there was just one done for the Aspen Institute, the numbers of Olympic athletes who played multiple sports as kids is astronomical. It's into the 90-something 90, 90 percent, 92%. So the path to, to excellence starts with a broad base, and then a lot of the hours of sports-specific specialization, those come in the teenage years, and, that, and that's a, a far better time to do it. It seems like the greatest gift I ever gave my kids was a lack of fast-twitch muscle fiber, so they'll never even be good enough to make the travel teams. Uh, all right, John, thank you so much for calling in to talk to us. We really appreciate it. This is John O'Sullivan. He's at the Changing the Game Project. That's changingthegameproject.com. Thanks, John. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me on, guys. So, Allison, I have a confession about this conversation, which is that my desire to have my kids not 
do travel sports has nothing to do with my concerns that they will not be well-rounded athletes or that they will tear their ACLs or something. It has nothing to do with their well-being. My problem is that I see like every family around us completely losing their lives to these travel teams. Like every weekend, everyone we know is going to Richmond or Norfolk or Delaware for some fucking hockey or soccer or basketball tournament. And the kids' sport becomes like the only thing that family does. And I know that, I mean, these are our friends and they have made their choices for their kids and their kids love it. And they, this is what they want to be doing. But that would just drive me like fucking crazy to have my life revolve around that to that extent. It would drive me crazy too, except do your kids feel left out? Like you're, they're now not a part of this thing that everyone else is doing. Lyra doesn't care, but Harper definitely will. It, yeah. It's, it, we, it is very, very soon Harper is going to start asking why she can't try out for travel teams. Yeah. And I don't know what we were going to say to her other than that. I don't want to spend my weekends that way. Like I want our family to be able to travel places and visit family well, and other places. <laughs> no, but like, places. right. But not travel to a hotel in Delaware yeah. and a soccer field. Yeah. I want us to like go play. I want us to be able to go out with Alia's parents' places and stuff. And I want us to be social and do social things with our friends, not constantly beg off of stuff because we have another <laughs> goddamn tournament. Like, I really want to hear from listeners on this. I feel like we, this was a very one-sided conversation, and that's fine. We all agree, and, you know, I mean, great. But right, I, we're, but right. I, we're right. We're right, right. No, but I would love to hear from people. There must be several of you who do this every weekend, who maybe have mixed feelings about it, who maybe are completely on board. We yeah. we definitely would like to hear from you. Yeah, write, write to me and tell me what why you feel like this is something that is great and important for you and your family and why you love it. If you're a person who loves it, I definitely want to hear that because if I have to become one of these people with Harper, the one who is actually an athlete, then I got to figure out a way to love it too. Uh, the email address is mom and dad at slate.com. Uh, drop us an email and let us know that we're wrong or right or wrong. All right, let's move on to our second ad. Allison. Our second sponsor this week is Gemvara. Dan. Yes. Have you ever bought Alia a piece of jewelry that she clearly does not like? Have I ever? Well, there was her engagement ring, then all the other ones. Uh, okay, so let's take the engagement ring. How did that go? Um, I bought her a tiny engagement ring that, at a store in a mall with like all the money I had from my bookstore job when I was 22. And it was kind of ugly and not very good. And, and she was very nice, and she did say yes, and we got married. But then 10 years later, she was like, Dan, I don't like this ring. She held on to it for 10 years. She didn't at the time say, like, yes, I want to marry you, but let's go get a different ring. No. Well, how would we have gotten a different ring? I didn't have any money left. Uh, Well, she could have returned it. Okay. Well, if only she had known about Gemvara. If only. Yes. Because with Gemvara, there's no need to return a piece of jewelry from a loved one or to wear a piece of jewelry you don't really like but feel obligated to because you don't want to make your spouse, Dan Coyce, terrible (laughs) taste, feel bad. (laughs) Now, with GemvaraStoneReset.com, you can turn jewelry that you don't like into jewelry that you love. And this is for men and women, I should say. I only asked Dan his... I should ask, has Alia ever gotten you jewelry that you don't like? No, no, but I don't. She only ever got me one piece of jewelry and I like it. Well, if you didn't, you could also go to gemvara.com. If she ever gets me a chain with a huge diamond-encrusted cross on it, I will go to gemvara.com. It's actually stonereset.com. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Uh, Gemvara's Stone Reset at stonereset.com. You select from a variety of beautiful settings. Choose your favorite metal and accent stones. You can even preview your design from different angles. And then expert jewelers will handcraft the customized setting around your gemstone. Uh, It's easy, it's creative, and it is fun to do. And our listeners can get 15% off the Stone Reset of your choosing. Just go to stonereset.com slash mom and dad 
M-O-M-A-N-D-D-A-D, for 15% off. You just fill out the form to get a prepaid insured kit, then click Request Package, and that will give you the ability to mail your engagement ring that you don't like that Dan Coyce got you Mm -hmm. to the experts at StoneReset.com and get back a beautiful ring that you'll love. That's StoneReset.com slash mom and dad. The people at Stone Reset are going to be delighted when all the engagement rings I gave to women everywhere that were so ugly start <laughs> coming in. flowing back. And... <laughs> all right, let's move on to our listener call. Every episode, we answer a question from you, our trusty listeners, about parenting uh, and your lives in general. If you have a question you want us to answer on the air, give us a call at 424-255-7833. That's 424-255-RUDE. Our question this week is from Betsy in Burlingame, California. I have a 12-year-old daughter who is an avid reader, and right now she's particularly interested in reading young adult literature that has more grown-up themes like drinking, drug use, drug abuse, and sex. She's a pretty mature kid, but I'm not sure if I'm comfortable allowing her to read these books, and she still asks my permission, um, and I don't think she's read them yet, but I'm not naive enough to think she couldn't access the books on her own. Personally, I remember reading many books when I was about her age that definitely had adult themes in them, and I didn't ask my parents for permission. My friends say I could read these books before my daughter does so that we can talk about them and make sure I'm there for her to answer questions, and this seems reasonable in theory, but like everyone, I don't have a ton of time. I have three kids. I have a very full-time job, husband, dogs, blah, blah, blah. And quite honestly, I actually don't really want to read these books in the very little free time that I do have. So my question is, should I be censoring my middle schooler's reading material? Thanks for your time. Bye. No. No, you should not be censoring your middle schooler's reading material. First of all, whatever friend told you you could just read every book before your kid (laughs) reads it and then talk with them about it is I'm sure your friend is very nice, but she's crazy. No one can do that. No one has time to do that. Uh, I think you should just let her read whatever. You should just let her read whatever she wants. She'll be fine. They're books. They will not, like, kill her. She'll be totally, totally, totally fine. Allison, what were you reading when you were 12? Oh, God. I don't remember what I was reading when I was 12, but there was recently a piece in in Motherload about the same question with Divergent, which maybe is what Betsy is talking about without... Maybe. There are a lot of 12-year-olds who want to read Divergent right now. Yeah. I mean, and and you should read this piece, Betsy. We'll put it on our show page, but, you know, basically it asks, is is this book too old for you? I mean, what is... Reading is like a... That's what reading's for when you're 12, right? Right. It's to experience all the dangerous and weird and sexy parts of life without actually having to deal with them in real life. Yes. It's totally great for that. So when I was 12, I was reading almost exclusively Clive Cussler novels, which are these unbelievably trashy, awful, like, boy adventure stories starring Dirk Pitt, green-eyed seafarer and uh, and salvage worker, and his adventures across the globe, and the beautiful women who wanted to sleep with him, and the men he kills. And there, all I remember about them now is that they would always, in like, at the beginning of each chapter, it would introduce, like, some random character you've never met before, and you would know when you met this guy that he was that he would definitely die in two pages or less because of some threat that Dirk Pitt would then solve. And it would always be like, he saw a flesh, and then he was no more. And I ate this shit up, and it was garbage, but it didn't matter. What I remember is actually reading my mom in the in the guest room. My mom had, like, a bunch of Jackie Collins books. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, and I used to pull those out to get a little, like, you know thrill 
uh, when she had no idea. But yeah, I think like you're you were not talking about a seven year old year old here. We're talking about your twelve year old daughter who's hearing and learning and talking to her friends about a lot of this stuff anyway that right. you're not you know screening in advance. This is a great way for her to explore she will come to you if she has questions right and And she also will kids i think are very good at determining what they actually are interested in and what they don't feel ready for at least most kids are and i think that especially smart adventurous readers like your child seems like she is have a sense of what they actually want and what they don't want and i think that she will read stuff you hate for a while and then she will settle on interesting good books because there are so many good books out there and they're so so good and anyways, like reading some stuff that your mom hates is an important part of childhood. And she won't understand embrace. all of it. Like yeah. The stuff that you're most worried about, she may, she might not understand. Right. So I think it will be fine. Uh, we are facing the struggle in a slightly different format, uh, which is that Lyra, who's 10, not 12, but is but is but reads a lot, is currently totally addicted to Percy Jackson fan fiction yeah. online. Oh, fan fiction? Yes, fan fiction. She Percy just Jackson. goes, she spends all her time reading fan fiction on fanfiction.net. That's wow. all she wants to do. And it's like, it's fairly objectionable because it's, a lot of it is like shitty. Um, shitty, like just bad writing? Just like bad writing and like not that interesting stories and like dumb romances between characters who don't matter. Um, it's also objectionable because if she was going to read fan fiction, why does she have to read fan fiction about characters I don't care about? I don't care about Percy Jackson. If she was reading Harry Potter fan fiction, I would be delighted and I would read it along with her. But the like, but I'm not that worried about it because the it's part of a, in the same way that you can sort of tell from just looking at a book sort of the way, how racy it's going to be. This online community she's part of now is actually very self-policing and keeps track of of the content and stories and warns people about the stories that they should or should not read, which in some cases lures her out of a sense of adventure and in some cases pushes her away. But I feel like she can basically handle it. And I hate it, but whatever. Three months from now she'll be reading something else and your daughter will too. Betsy, so I think that you should not stress. This also reminds me of a great scene from I don't remember what season of Louie with Louie and Parker Posey in the bookstore talking oh, yeah. about you remember that? Yes. We're gonna I'm gonna find that scene and also put that on our show page talking about what books meant to her when she was I think it was about what books meant to her when she was because he's going to look for interesting books for his girls mm-hmm. and she talks about what books were meant to her when she was in her bed at night as a tween. Mm-hmm. It's a great scene. Uh, all right, thank you for the call, Betsy. Please don't sweat it. Your kid will be okay. She sounds smart. Give us a call, listeners, if you have a question you want us to reassure you about or tell you you're wrong, but often we'll reassure you. 424-255-7833. That's 424-255-RUDE. Rude, like the awakening suffered by that unnamed character in a Clive Cussler novel when the torpedo hit his boat. Okay, on to our next segment. The new book, Primates of Park Avenue, officially became a big deal a few weeks ago when its author, Wednesday Martin, wrote in the New York Times about a phenomenon she had discovered while researching the book, that very rich men are paying their stay-at-home wives money at the end of the year for a child-raising and household-maintaining job well done. Well, fascinating and or horrifying, depending on your view, the wife bonus is actually just a small part of Martin's book, a memoir by the social researcher of her time living among the very, very rich mothers of the Upper East Side. Mostly, the book is about one very particular parenting culture, a window into how extremely wealthy people raise their children and how extremely wealthy mothers craft and cultivate their identities and sense of self-worth around their kids. Uh, Wednesday's here with us in the New York studio to talk about the book and her time on Park Avenue. Hey, Wednesday. Hello. So... Early in the book, you say that living and learning from Upper East Side mommies opened up a world that, this is your list, titillated, fascinated, educated, and occasionally appalled you. 
Can you give us an example of each? <laughs> well, maybe not an example of each, but I can give you an example that I think covers all of those adjectives. <laughs> <laughs> Better yet. And this is one of the symptoms of what the sociologist Sharon Hayes calls intensive mothering. And she talks about how intensive mothering is really specific to privileged populations. And that in those populations, women are basically ideologically compelled from the outside and from the inside by their feelings to enrich their children's lives on every measure they can possibly think of. So a great example of this that really took me by surprise was when I realized that parents were invited to school open houses in order to learn how to do, for example, math, so that they could more effectively, on the home front, teach their children to do math the way it was being taught at school. Mm. Now, you might think, oh, that sounds pretty logical, but let's peel back the layers. It's not enough now to tell your child, here's your homework, you better do it. It's not enough to tell your child, here's a nice space for you that I created to do your homework. It's not enough to sit there next to your child and say, can I help you do your homework? You're now, to a certain extent, expected to be in this mind meld with your child in which you are also doing the homework. And that's just one example of how I saw mothers pressured to be homework tutors, occupational therapists, chefs, educators about astronomy. Uh, they be, had to become experts in all kinds of things. And generally, even though childcare arrangements are changing up over the country and dads are very involved, generally intensive mothering is called that because especially in elite populations, women are still primary caregivers of their children in this country. You make a real point in the book that the privilege of these moms on the Upper East Side is obviously extreme by national standards, but that it reflects a certain amount of privilege that pretty much all American parents have and that you can sort of revise downwards a lot of your discoveries about these parents and this parenting style uh, in this world to the privileged lives that many of us lead, many of our listeners included. But you also note that there are some things about that parenting experience that's totally universal, that's totally recognizable to any parent, where there are things that these like crazy Upper East Side mommies did that you found very recognizable and things that they that, that you found worthwhile and started adopting in your own parenting? Absolutely. One of the things was the emphasis on charitable giving. Mm -hmm. And you see families on the Upper East Side and all across the city, but I saw these women really instilling a sense of charity and volunteerism in their children from a very early age. And I thought that was wonderful. And I think that's something that, you know, I, am, I admire about American parenting, uh, this emphasis on taking your kids to, um, you know, a food bank or teaching your kids the spirit of the holidays. There are all kinds of ways that parents do that. These parents just did it, ratcheted up a level right. uh, because they could. One thing that I want to say is, you know, this really isn't a book about putting down one group of people regardless of how it's been perceived before people actually got the book into their hands. And a lot of times we really dismiss women's behavior around parenting as neurotic or overprotective. But there's this terrible double standard in which, you know, the ideology of intensive mothering tells them, do this 
or else you're a bad mother. And then they do it, and they're a helicopter mother. So this is a rock and a hard place where these women found themselves like a lot of women. I'm really interested in the relationship between the way that, you know, the women that you describe in the book and, like, the way that we normals parent, which is a little bit what you were getting at. And I'm curious if you think there's, like, a trickle-down effect. Like, is it uh, rich people went to spas and now we all go to spas? Or is it, like, they are a product of this culture that we're all just kind of, you know, swimming in? Wow, did you ever hit it with that one? (laughs) I think that other places, I, I do sometimes work in London. And I've talked about how in England, there's more of a common sense parenting culture and ethos than we seem to have here. And I think that if you're very wealthy here, you know, living as we do neo-locally, we leave our families, we leave our extended kin, we raise our kid usually in a heterosexual diet, although things are changing, thankfully. But When you're raising children this way, the way we do, and you're privileged, you're away from those everyday experts, your parents and your grandparents. You're depending on the pediatrician. You're depending on Penelope Leach. You're depending on Barry Sears. You're depending on Jean-Jacques Rousseau. All the parenting discourses coming at these people increase probably as the level of wealth increases. And certainly what I observed was that these people had 25 parenting philosophies coming at them every day and 25 experts telling them how to do it, what to do, and how they were doing it wrong. And that creates anxiety for parents and children. Right. And they have tool, you know, the reason that it manifests itself in crazier and crazier ways in this particular society is that they have the tools and the resources to combat those fears and anxieties far beyond what the rest of us can dream of. But who's to say that if I didn't have that money, that I wouldn't be doing all that stuff for my kids, too? I'd like to find out. You know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the question of every Sunday Styles, you know, parent hate read, right? Like, you can judge it, but you could never do it. And if you could actually have, like, have some come in in and, like, whatever, the ridiculous things they do, maybe it would make your life. Could I just say something about what Dan just said? What we've written about so extensively is the choice dilemma, right? Mm -hmm. The inverted you, um, Malcolm Gladwell writes about it. The more choices you have, ironically, the more paralyzed you feel. And I think that it's time to explore how the choice dilemma is gendered, because I noticed that the choice dilemma, just observationally, is worse for mothers. Because there's one thing that mitigates or ameliorates the choice dilemma, and that is if you can tell yourself the choice doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter if I get this colored pair of shoes or that colored pair of shoes for my kid ultimately. But what if I don't get the safest stroller? What if I don't get the car with the highest safety rating? What if I don't get my kid into the best schools? What if I don't get my kid to the best pediatrician? These are not choices. What if I don't get my child the best caregiver? These are not choices about which you can say, nah, doesn't matter that much. So I find the choice dilemma particularly salient for parents, and I think we have to explore the ways in which it affects them, and I think we're going to find that it's gendered, too, and it's the choice dilemma is really different for moms. All right, the book is called Primates of Park Avenue. It is really great. Thank you, Wednesday Martin, for coming in and talking with us. It is out now. Check it out. We'll have a link to it on our show page. Thanks, guys, for having me. Thank you. All right, coming up, recommendations, but first... A message from one of our friends on the Panoply Network of Podcasts. 
Hey, I'm Carrie Goldberg. Hi, Carrie. I'm Rachel Zimmerman. Hey, Rachel. And we'd like to invite you to our podcast from WBUR and Slate, The Checkup. Checkup. Join us next time for an episode we're calling Teenage Zombies, a glimpse inside the minds of teens from sleep to porn. Check out The Checkup and other podcasts from the Panoply Network at iTunes.com slash Panoply. All right, let's move on to recommendations. I will start. Uh, I'm going to recommend a pretty great comic book uh, that I think would be great for teens, for smarty pants teens who want to learn more about the world. Um, I wrote a little bit about it this week in Slate, uh, but I'll tell you guys about it as well. It is called The Cartoon Introduction to Philosophy. Uh, It is by Michael Patton and Kevin Cannon. It is a comic book guide down the great and winding river of Western thought from Plato to uh, Descartes to zombie David Chalmers, who makes an important appearance toward the end. Uh, It is very funny. It is a great introduction to complicated notions. Uh, It is very charming. Your host is the pre-Socratic philosopher Heraclitus as he sails his canoe down the river of great thought about thought. I really liked it. It is super cute and super funny. And I think the teenagers who are interested in thinking about stuff like this would really, really get into this as an introduction to that world. So that's my recommendation. Kids who are not reading Percy Jackson fan fiction. Correct. Someday my child (laughs) will get into something besides (laughs) Percy Jackson fan fiction. Allison, what about you? Okay, so there are two pieces of writing that I was moved by this week that I think are worth mentioning, both sad. Uh, The first is a very short essay by Evan Osnos on the New Yorker's website called We Bidens about the importance of family to Joe Biden, written a few days after his son, Beau, died from brain cancer. Uh, And then Sheryl Sandberg, this feels like such a strange thing to say, to recommend, but Sheryl Sandberg's Facebook post uh, on mourning the death of her husband, Dave, which, despite my not entirely positive feelings about Sheryl Sheryl Sandberg, the public personality, and despite, I think, both of our complicated feelings about social media mourning, I was really moved by. So both are worth a bit of your time. It is a really beautiful post, and it did also make me, it made me feel bad for her on multiple levels, including the level at which... She had to write it. Yeah, she's a public person who feels that she has to do this thing publicly, and she must have worked really hard on it, and it turned out great, but God, to have to do that, and to know that you know, fucking Randy Zuckerberg is going to like it. Like, that's your life now. Uh, all right. That's our show. What a depressing ending. <laughs> Come to the live show. Yeah, well, There'll be we, more of the same. We won't do any of the shit at the live show. It's just nothing but singing. Uh, please email us at slate.com with your thoughts about today's show, with your parenting tips, with your suggestions for future topics. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and leave us a, a, a rating, uh, you know, like a five-star rating, not a one-star rating. While you're there, that helps other people discover the show. Please call us with your questions at 424-255-7833. Thanks to our guests today, John O'Sullivan and Wednesday Martin. Thanks to our producer, Ann Hepperman, and to our intern, Jesse Chasen Tabor. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer, and our executive producer is Andy Bowers. Mom and Dad are fighting as part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Thank you, Allison. Thanks, Dan. And thank you all for listening. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. 
purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.